Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation about technology and science. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and on this week's show... Dolly is the name of the first mammal, yes, a sheep, ever to be born as the result of cloning. A cloned sheep is one thing, but we could now be on the cusp of cloning humans. We'll dig into some of the practical and ethical problems this could pose. Say you get married and your partner dies and you decide to clone them and you raise them as your child. You know, what if they get to the age of 16 and then you decide to marry them again? Also, technology has become embedded into Europe's migration crisis. Why are smartphones so important to migrants and refugees? The moment that many get off the boats from Turkey to Greece, they whip out their mobile phones to send photos back to people to let them know they're safe, uh, to contact their smuggler, to work out where to go next in Europe. First, though, remember this. The headline on the other major news story today, to which we intend to devote some time, is very simple. Hello, Dolly. 20 years ago, scientists in Scotland made headlines around the world by creating Dolly the Sheep, the first clone made from an adult cell. Dolly is doing fine, thank you. She is seven months old already. Now, advances in reproductive technologies have brought us to the situation where cloning humans may soon be possible. Obviously, this raises many questions, some practical and some ethical. Joining me now to discuss all this is our healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder. Hello, Natasha. Hello. So let's go back to Dolly first. Why was Dolly such a big deal? Well, scientifically, she was a big deal because scientists had never actually been able to clone a mammal before. And it proved something that people had had doubted before is that you could take a cell that was specialised like a skin cell or a a neuron and you could essentially wind back the biological clock and force it to become and behave essentially like an embryonic stem cell. Roughly, what did the cloning process consist of? So essentially the, the team who created Dolly took sheep's eggs and they took out all the nuclear material that contains the genes, the DNA that codes for the sheep essentially. And they took the nuclear material from an udder of another sheep and put that into the egg and then zapped it with a little bit of a jolt of electricity and the egg started to divide. Now, what's happening is the cytoplasm, the kind of jelly stuff inside the egg, was reprogramming the DNA from the other cell. And that was a sort of demonstration that, that this DNA that had formerly been busy kind of churning out the proteins needed to be a skin cell could actually stop that, go back and actually start the business of churning out the proteins necessary to make an embryo, a sheep embryo, and then on to a developing lamb. So people had tried this before with other animals and it hadn't succeeded. So what had they tried it with before and what had ended up happening? In the 1960s, frogs had been cloned. They'd never developed beyond the tadpole stage, though. And then subsequent to that, people tried mammals over many years and they just failed. And 
it became a sort of a dogma, a sort of idea in biology that it just wasn't possible that mammals were different. So Dolly showed that that wasn't the case. And at the time, there was a lot of fussing that Dolly meant that human cloning was just around the corner as well. And yet here we are 20 years later, and that doesn't seem to have happened. So presumably that means that human cloning was more difficult than we thought and that Dolly didn't just give us the recipe for doing it. So the method that they used to create Dolly, although it was a breakthrough in the sense that they figured out how to sort of synchronize the cycles of the two cells that were being used, the egg cell without the nucleus and the the donor cell from the udder. And that was very clever. And, And people assumed that actually this technique would allow them to work on other species. And it did but not primates. And this is actually one of these really interesting lessons about science is that it really doesn't travel in a straight line. And, you know, some species, you could pretty much use the Dolly protocol or a little bit modified. And some species were easy. They managed to do horses and and rats and, and a whole bunch of other species. But primates were hard. So it wasn't until 2007 that it was first done in primates. And then it took until 2013 until it was done in humans. And that essentially was just the cloning of the embryo. So humans weren't cloned, but a human embryo was created from a differentiated adult cell that wasn't implanted into a womb and used to clone a human. It was it was just a sort of scientific experiment in a dish. So it's taken almost 20 years then for people to figure out how to apply that to humans. Does that now mean that human cloning is just around the corner then? I think as a technique that you and I might consider to use as part of our reproductive choices, I think it's unlikely. If you think about the sort of commercial obstacles there to get the technique approved for use. First of all, you'd have to have a number of preclinical trials. You'd have to test the technique in lots of different primates and, you know, make sure that it's safe. And then you'd have to move into trials in humans. And it's really hard to see, you know, who would participate in that and who would pay for that. All that said, that doesn't mean that people are not going to try. We do know that fertility clinics in the past have been asked about human cloning. In fact, we know that people who are cloning polo ponies at the moment in Argentina say they've been asked about human cloning. So there is a, a demand for it. Whether rich individuals will find someone willing to try it, I wouldn't doubt it. I'm sure somebody will try it. Let's say that somehow or another, somebody shows that it can be done safely. Won't we have to deal with the ethical implications of that? What are they? What are the sort of challenges that safe human cloning would present? I mean, you can think of all sorts of odd situations that could arise if you could just clone willy-nilly. For example, you could decide to clone your children. You could have one child that you liked and you could clone it several times. One thought experiment I wondered about was, well, say your parents, their will say that the the estate must be split between all the offspring and and you decide to clone yourself three times. You know, does does that mean you get more of a share of the estate? And then there's some deeply disturbing and weird possibilities that arise. Say you get married and your partner dies and you decide to clone them and you raise them as your child. And then, you know, what if they get to the age of 16 and then you decide to marry them again? Would famous people sell bits of their DNA in order that you could you could have a Kardashian clone? You know, that would be a way of keeping up the Kardashians, wouldn't it? You know, instead of having your own children, you could have Kardashians. I mean, there's all sorts of sort of mind-boggling things that could come about that I suspect that society would end up regulating the technology very heavily. Doesn't a lot of this, though, 
stem from the science fiction idea that a clone is a sort of identical copy of a person, not just genetically, but in their personality too. And an awful lot of these things, if you clone a child that you like, you're probably, I mean, identical twins may be genetically identical, but their personalities may often differ. So we're kind of presuming that the motivations people would have for cloning assume that they would get the clone of the personality too, which they obviously wouldn't. You know, this is really interesting and it's absolutely correct. Clones are around us all the time. They're called twins. And what we know about them, even when they grow up in the same house with supposedly the same environmental influences and the same clothing, is actually they turn out to be quite different people. You know, if you think about it, if you do clone yourself instead of having a child with someone else, that child is going to be growing up, you know, many decades after you grew up. And and so we'll be different in all kinds of ways. And, And what we know about human personalities and humans as individuals is that it's not just genes plus environment, it's a sort of interplay of the genes with the environment going on. There's obviously a lot of analysis of this in, in science fiction. Would you want to have an army of clones? Actually, you probably wouldn't, because if you've got an army of identical super soldiers, then they're all going to be vulnerable to the same biological agents. So I've read some sci-fi where you have armies of clones, but they are deliberately genetically diverse, and there are actually a bunch of different clones in there for that sort of reason. But clearly, this is going to be something we'll be grappling with in the decades and centuries to come. If you just think about the reason why we have sexual reproduction, it is, in fact, that it's within that diversity that you do develop a, a kind of strength, this, this crossbreeding that you, you have between different individuals. You do get this hybrid vigour and creating lots of clones is, I suspect, probably a, a sort of evolutionary dead end for humans. Natasha, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Tom. Would you clone your dying spouse and raise them as your next child? Do you think cloning could help us unravel the mystery of human consciousness? If you'd like to join in the conversation, tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at In last week's issue of The Economist, an obituary in our science section bade farewell to Hans Rosling, a Swedish data guru known for his ability to bring dry statistics to life. Tonight, I'm going to show you how things really are. My name is Hans Rosling. I'm a statistician that, no, 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 don't switch off. Because with the latest data from all countries, I'm going to show you the world in a new way. I'm Many of you were saddened by the news and took to social media to share stories about being inspired by Mr. Rosling. On Facebook, Kate Simpson wrote that one of his taglines was, let my data set change your mindset. Oh, how much we need people to see the importance of data, evidence and facts in this crazy, post-truth, alternative facts, anti-expert world. Scott Allen Morris, another Facebook user, wrote that Rosling got past the inchoate murmurings of most statistics professors to show what was good about statistics and how a dynamic, fun argument could be made. And that's no mean feat. Don't forget, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or get in touch via our Facebook page. Next, how important is your phone to you? Perhaps you're listening to this podcast on it, or sending a text, or checking social media. But for some people, it's become an absolutely indispensable tool to stay alive and safe. As tens of thousands of migrants and refugees travel towards Europe by land or sea, technology has made their journeys easier, and it's helping authorities manage the crisis too. Here to tell us about how this relationship may evolve is Emma Hogan, our Europe correspondent, and Ludwig Siegler, our technology editor. 
Emma, let's start with you. Put us in the shoes of a refugee. We don't think of refugees as, you know, people carrying the latest technological gadgets. What's going on here? Well, technology is absolutely essential to refugees. Their journey starts with their phones back home in Syria or in camps at the edge of of Turkey. The moment that many get off the boats from Turkey to Greece, they whip out their mobile phones to send photos back to people to let them know they're safe, uh, to contact their smuggler, to work out where to go next in Europe. They talk to people through Facebook, through WhatsApp, through Viber. And the idea that refugees can't own phones is is somewhat mistaken. Um, Many of these people, particularly those from the Middle East, are fleeing war. They are middle-class people who have money. And the idea that a phone is a luxury item is is incredibly outdated. Ludwig, how does this work practically? Because, you know, even if you're just a Westerner on holiday, dealing with sort of data roaming and tariffs and so on is... uh not as easy as it could be, but it's obviously even more difficult if you're a refugee. So how do they keep the phones going? Very often it's just simple Wi-Fi. In the camps, often there is no Wi-Fi, but but then migrants look around whether they can find free Wi-Fi somewhere near a cafe. So that's what's happening in, in, in Dunkirk. So people were walking like five miles to find the next cafe with free Wi-Fi. Otherwise, they buy SIM cards. SIM cards get smuggled, for example, from uh, Britain to France. Uh, the reason being is that in Britain, nobody has to show his or her ID card to buy a SIM card, which is the case in France. So they get smuggled over. Then there's uh, charities that donate airtime to refugees. So it's it's very opportunistic in a way. But they always somehow find connectivity, and connectivity is really important for them. So Emma, if refugees are increasingly relying on these phones, presumably that gives the authorities an opportunity to figure out where they are and monitor the flow of refugees more easily. Well, one would hope so. But it, in many cases, governments have been quite slow to catch up. Technology has enabled this migration to a huge degree. People would have left Syria anyway because they're fleeing war. But technology has made it far easier. And what I've been struck by in in reporting on migration is how slow several governments have been in trying to meet this technological, what we describe as an arms race in our piece, with their own sophisticated systems. Is that to prevent migration or what do you mean by an arms race? So smartphones kind of uh, increase the flow of information so it makes it easier for refugees to find their way. So governments then have to manage that flow of refugees and the way they do that is they register these refugees, fingerprints, what have you. And this data goes into a database and these databases make it easier for governments for the UNHCR to uh, manage uh, those refugees. They can provide additional services. For example, in Germany has built this, this, this new database that also kind of includes information about the language skills of refugees, whether they need language classes, and so on and so forth. So the, the arms race is in the sense that the refugees are in some senses more technologically savvy than the governments, and only a few of them, like Germany, have sort of realised that they have to use technology as, to manage uh, migration as well. Not just Germany. I mean, Sweden has done a lot. Europe as a whole, Eurodac, that's the name of the database in Europe. They have improved that technology. So yes, there, there, there is this flow of refugees or migrants enabled by technology kind of, and now the empire, quote unquote, is striking back. And when migrants and refugees have arrived in, in Europe, presumably having a phone makes it easier for them to integrate with the society at the other end because they've got some sort of connectivity, they can find work. Is that sort of thing happening? Initially, uh, so some government bodies, so the sort of the EU relocation service is trying to put out videos on Facebook to encourage people to go to other countries. But for those who are stuck in camps, 60,000 stuck in camps in Greece, often they're not using Wi-Fi provided by governments. It's, It's from NGOs. And as such, there is not much effort from governments to also make these people productive in the camps. There's 
some schemes in camps in Jordan and so on where they are trying to use connectivity to help people learn and, or to, to, to do online courses. But as a whole, that doesn't seem to be happening. So you're creating people who are, are stuck in camps uh, who are losing out several years of education. Right now the situation is that, that government's kind of trying to limit connectivity in camps just to avoid that they can become permanent and that, that more people come. And I think that's that's not the right way to go. Why does having better connectivity make a camp more likely to become permanent? I mean, why is that not true of water or electricity? It, it is, in a way, also true for water and electricity. But we now agree on that we have to provide these, these utilities to refugees. I mean, we're not going to kind of starve them. Right. But you can make the camps less attractive if you deny internet access. Yes. And I think that's the wrong way to go. I mean, we're not going to solve the problem. OK, we may solve the problem locally because people don't come to a camp. But we have to help people. We have to provide cheap connectivity in camps, which is not happening. Networks are very often overloaded or shut down by agencies. So Western governments still see the use of smartphones and connectivity by refugees and migrants as a problem rather than as part of the solution? Some of the governments do, yes. Emma and Ludwig, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you did, please take a moment to rate it through your podcast app or on iTunes. And if you have a topic or story you'd like us to cover, email us at radio at In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.